Coming to you from Washington, D.C., I'm Lisa Sharon Harper, president of Freedom Road, a consulting group dedicated to shrinking the narrative gap. Welcome to the Freedom Road podcast. On June 4, 2020, interfaith leaders from across the country came together to have really what ended up being a prophetic conversation. It was a conversation that catalyzed us to dream of another way of being together in the world. And it was in the light of, in the shadow of one night where 175 fires were burning all across America in 175 different cities in response to the death of George Floyd and the lack of justice with regard to policing and law enforcement. So these faith leaders had a critical conversation at a critical moment. And Freedom Road convened at the meeting in partnership with Faith in Public Life and Auburn Seminary. So we need to say thank you to them. But it was such a great conversation that we thought we need to bring this over to the podcast. The folks who listen to our podcast need to also hear this conversation. So sit back, relax, get your popcorn, get your dinner, listen, listen to this conversation, and just for a moment, dream with us of another way of being in the world. We are excited to come to you today from all over the country for a national town hall on policing and law enforcement from a group of interfaith leaders from all over the country. And I'm so, so happy to help bring this to you. My name is Lisa Sharon Harper. I'm the president and founder of Freedom Road, LLC. We are a consulting group dedicated to shrinking the narrative gap. That is the gap between the stories that we tell ourselves about ourselves and how we got here. Because we believe as large as that gap is there, the more uh, resistance we will have to change and justice. So I want to introduce some of the other people who will be working with us today and also people who help make this happen. Our first panel, we have Leroy Barber and Valerie Kaur and Otis Moss III, who I will, I'll be introducing all three of them in a little bit. But first, I want to introduce you to the people who are behind this, like who made this happen. Um, so House Power is a hashtag that we started around these town halls. The last town hall and first one we did was for COVID. And we were talking about the power of staying in our homes, the fact that we can beat COVID by staying home, right? So, but then we realized, you know, this is actually a really great organizing platform, a, a place where we can hold town halls on the regular. And so we decided to do this one. This is the second one that we've ever done. And the we there is Mr. Leroy Barber and also Shane Claiborne will be coming up later. We're doing this in partnership with Red Letter Christians and the Voices Project and the United Methodist Church Northwest and Auburn Seminary. And I want to say a special thank you to Auburn Seminary because Auburn Seminary dedicated a behind the scenes team and also a company of incredible senior fellows who you will be meeting in the course of this time. They raised their hand and they said, I want to be part of this. So Reverend Dr. Otis Moss III is one of those senior fellows. Bishop Yvette Flunder is another one. Rabbi Sharon Browse is another. Valerie Kaur, she is also a senior fellow at Auburn. Stosh Kotler 
with Ben the Ark is also. And Michael Ray Matthews regretted that he's not able to be with us today, but he was also one of those fellows. He was, I think, one of the first ones to say amen. So let me just say that this is an important conversation. We're here to dream. The reason why we're coming together as faith leaders is because people of faith, leaders of faith, have a particular capacity to dream because dreaming takes faith. You have got to have faith in order to be able to dream and push toward that dream. And we got to asking the question, what could it look like to have a fully reformed policing and law enforcement system? And what would it even look like to dig up the root of human hierarchy that has been enforced by our current policing system and plant a new seed? So I've invited about 13 of my closest friends to come and have this conversation with us today. So on this panel, we have Reverend Dr. Otis Moss III, we have Valerie Kaur, we have Reverend Leeward Barber. I'm going to just toss a question to each of you, and I want you just to share with us from the heart, and then we'll go into conversations. So Reverend Dr. Otis Moss III, your requiem for Ahmad Arbery was magnificent. I mean, it was literally can somebody say off the hook? In it, you trace the history that brought us to where we are right now. And can, I wondered if you can share that history for us for a moment. Certainly. And again, I want to thank you, Lisa, for, for bringing us together for this conversation. Uh, we're in the midst of two pandemics, one COVID-19, and the other is the pandemic I call COVID-1619, the moment that we landed on these shores of, of North America. Uh, this particular uh, pandemic is, is rooted in predatory self-interest. It begins by stating that Black people are only three-fifths of a human being, which is enshrined in our Constitution. But when Black people, we were emancipated, not by somebody else, but because of our resistance, we were emancipated from 1865 to 1877. Many people of African descent moved into the Senate, into the Congress, into local legislatures, and we had some of the highest level of governmental efficiency. But reconstruction, resistance always led to white resentment. Mm -hmm. And we moved into a period of lynching and what we call criminalization. The black body was criminalized. Now, please understand this. White supremacy has a hierarchy. White supremacy is socially constructed. But the idea of criminality in itself because of the insanity of racism functions in a particular way. Think about it. Hmm. The same people you want to raise your children, the same people you want to build your homes, the same people that you trust with your very life, and all of a sudden after 4 million are released into freedom, they all of a sudden are then defined as a criminal because of competing labor practices, black labor and white labor. And in order to ensure and protect white ethnic labor, you then had to criminalize black people. In wow. the penal system, you had to say, where two or three black people are gathered, then therefore you need a pass. You then had to prove if you were a citizen, your long form birth certificate, that's a long trope within the American system. Uh, you then criminalized black people to the point so they could then go to jail and then work for private companies. 
Reconstruction, the rebuilding of Birmingham, Atlanta, Charlotte, all these other places was because of black people who were re-enslaved through the peanut system placed in the criminal justice system. Roughly about a half million people were re-enslaved all the way up to 1972. From 1972 to 1976, America began to hammer out what we now call the war on drugs. And what we are seeing today is the bubbling over of consistent resistance in America. And let me frame this. When people use the word looting, please understand that America was the first place to loot. They looted land from indigenous people. They looted the bodies of African-Americans. And we now have a looter in chief who is COVID-45, who is spreading a pandemic of COVID-19 and has also been deeply affected by COVID-16-19. So yeah. we need to be able to frame this appropriately. What we are seeing today, though, is the first time of a multiracial movement. If we were to take every protester together, I think that we might have a 60-40 split, 60 being white, 40 being black, in every area across the nation and across the globe. So that gives me hope that the antibodies, the vaccine of hope, is moving in the spirit of the people in the United States of America. Mm. And Valerie Kaur, you are the founder and director of Revolutionary Love, which is a really prolific organization that is really pushing for us to love as the revolution. So what does it take to transform a police department? Let us know that, because I know that you have experience with that. Yes, let me say first, I am so moved and proud to be with you as my Black sisters and brothers and siblings that I just want to say in an act of solidarity and fierce love that I see you and I'm grieving with you and I'm raging with you. And I believe, as Otis has mentioned, my brother Otis, that there are more of us who are non-Black people of color and white allies standing with you today, centering anti-Black racism than ever before. That this may feel like 1968 and 1992, but there are thousands of us moving from resistance to reimagining the world that is that it ought to be. And this is what I want to speak into, and this is what I want to offer to this conversation in this act of solidarity. I'm a lawyer. I was part of a campaign working with a Latinx community to end a reign of terror by a police department. And we won. So I'm going to tell you the story of how it happened and the elements that I think might be useful for any of us who are engaged in local struggles today and the place of faith leaders in that struggle. In 2009, I was asked to attend a meeting in a church basement in East Haven, Connecticut, a sleepy industrial town. The priests brought a, a, a community together. The Latinx family members were pulling back their sleeves to show their scars at the hands of local police, tasering, beating. This is a police department that killed Malik Jones in the 1990s and no injustice was not done. When the priest asked the community, can you stand up now? They said, no, it's too dangerous. You know what the priest did, Father James Manship? He wrote a line on the board and said, what is the world as it is? And what is the world as it ought to be? And the world as it ought to be, who has the power? And they said, well, the police has the power now and the mayor has the power now. He's like, no, but the somebody in the front said the people. Like, That's right, the people have the power when God is in their hearts. And we're not alone, we have our lawyers here. And I was a law student at the time, but in that moment, we became a coalition of faith leaders, community members, lawyers, and law students. And we launched a full-throated campaign, not just to remove a few bad apples from the department, but to take on a pattern and practice of racial profiling by this department. And traditional lawyering, you just use one blunt tool. 
But when you're a movement lawyering, you open a toolkit, we use public advocacy, media advocacy, legislative advocacy before we ever filed a single lawsuit. The turning point came when we got the Department of Justice to investigate. This was under the Obama era. And the only department that was investigated by the Obama era before East Haven was Sheriff Arpaio in Maricopa County. So this was monumental. And the police did not respond kindly. They lawyered up. I remember being in meetings where the police were retaliating against the community members who stood up, but we stood next to them. And I remember being trailed by police as I'm driving home from school. So it was a scary protracted, it took three years. But after three years, the Department of Justice released a monumental consent decree. Four police officers were arrested and put behind bars, accused of conspiracy, false arrest, excessive use of force, and obstruction of justice. And this is the extraordinary thing. In order to create that consent decree, the law students, the clinic students, sat back in that church basement and asked the community themselves to reimagine what public safety looked like in their community. They created seven demands, and it was up to us who are their allies and accomplices to translate those demands to the DOJ. And they met six of those seven demands and we got the seventh one on a lawsuit. Today, the department uh, in East Haven, Connecticut, it's not perfect, but the community had ended its reign of terror, transformed the police department. When Trump asked police to unleash deportation forces, the East Haven Police Department could not comply by order of the consent decree. And tomorrow, the East Haven Police Department is showing up at a Black Lives Matter rally in East Haven issuing a solidarity of support saying, we're gonna march with you. So this, this wasn't just resistance, this was transformation. Yes. And there were three elements that made it happen. One, the community wasn't just victims, we were the ones reimagining together. Number two, we had allies where every single one of us had a, lo- a role, including a, not just allies, but accomplices, right? People who are conspiring to break chains together. And number three, we had a department of justice that wasn't gutted, that was designed to do what it did. And so that means that we can't actually see the complete transformation that we need unless we all vote this fall and get these police departments going in that direction. So this is why I believe faith leaders have those spaces to open up and expand our moral imagination and to partner with those who can actually translate that into concrete policy change. Thank you so, so much. Leroy Barber is the director of the Voices Project and also heads up innovation and Justice Ministry for the United Methodist Church Northwest. Leroy, here's my question for you, brother. You also come out of the evangelical church, right? So there are those who have created a theology of law and order around Romans 13, 1 through 7. How do you respond to these individuals and pastors? We respond out of the history that begins in Exodus, right? Where these Hebrew midwives led the first protest that we can, we yes. can, right? Uh, yes. The first protest against Pharaoh is the tradition in which we sit, right? And so, yeah. so I say to those who follow Roman 13, they need to go back to Exodus and see that this is embedded deeply in the heart of scripture. Mm-hmm. And so to answer that question quickly, there's where it starts for me three years ago now, off of Colin Kaepernick kneeling, You know, at that time, we gave up football and we went around the whole country for a whole year, kneeling, saying nothing, right? Gathering a group of black folks, kneeling outside of stadiums, got harassed by cops and all kinds of folks. And that that peaceful protest, if you will, right, 
no one liked. And so, and now that the noise is rising higher, I think uh, folks are just tired. And when black folks get tired, don't mean we stop. It means that we fight harder. And so I think that's where we are. I think where we are is we're fighting. We're tired and fighting. These are our stories. You're listening to the Freedom Road podcast, where we bring you stories from the front lines of the struggle for justice. of times that seed books, blogs, magazine articles, and op-eds that move the world forward. Are words floating in your head looking for a place to land? Do you need a safe space to write and share your work with other writers and receive feedback that helps to hone it, sharpen it, make it even better? Freedom Road is launching an international writing group online. Writers from across the globe will come together on Zoom, making space and writing in each other's presence, but in our living rooms, like good citizens do when we are social distancing. (laughs) Then we're going to share what God poured into the world through us. Your one-year membership can lock in your spot in this international writing community, or you can pay month to month. Follow the link in the show notes on our website at freedomroad.us to register today. So this next panel is actually going to feature Reverend Jim Wallace, Rabbi Sharon Browse, and also Bishop Darren Ferguson when he gets here. (laughs) Here he comes. Okay. Here he is. Okay, very, very good. So everybody, thank you so much for showing up. Thank you so much for the thinking that you've been doing in preparation for this conversation. Let's dive in. So Reverend Jim Wallace uh, is with Sojourners, and your work takes you into the halls of power. You have been at this work now for going on 45 years. Isn't that right? No, it's it's going on 50 years now. How, How long has it been? No, I started when I was six. (laughs) <laughs> now, I mean, you know, Sojourners, so the 71, 1971. Yep, to, almost 50, yeah. Almost 50 years. So, folks, we have somebody with some longevity, with memory here. And then we also have Rabbi Sharon Browse of ECAR, and it's based in Los Angeles. And she, if you haven't seen her TED Talk, absolutely fabulous and amazing. I have a question to start you guys off. Are there any overlapping or similar principles between faith traditions as it relates to policing? and law enforcement? And if so, how can we come together over these over these principles? Rabbi. Okay, first of all, just incredible and immense gratitude. And I really understand the weight of this moment, just hearing the echoes of Lisa Sharon Harper's voice saying, black people are tired, black people are tired. And that was before George Floyd was, was murdered. And so I, I stand with you, beside you, and feel honored to be present here with you today. Lisa Sharon Harper says that we are, we're here to dream and it's such powerful language to hear in this moment because we know that our system is entrenched in racism as my, as my dear friend, uh, Reverend Otis Moss just said, rooted, the system rooted in predatory self-interest and fundamentally contradictory to all of our core values as people of faith. So the question is really, 
what is the dream? And I want to just draw us today to one rabbinic idea that comes from a text, a, a midrash called Devarim Rabbah, where the rabbis ask us to imagine that a procession of angels marches before every single individual saying, make way for the image of the Holy One is coming. Make way for the image of the Holy One. And I want to ask us in this dreamscape that you've created here, Lisa, imagine for a moment an idea, a concept that's so core and so fundamental to my faith tradition, and I know to many of ours, which is the notion that being created in the image of God means that we need and deserve to be treated as the image of God. And that's not true for one of us or for some of us, but absolutely for all of us. And I believe that what this moment is demanding of us is a kind of radical thinking about paradigm shift, about not how can we cut the corners and make tweaks and make things a little bit better, but when we when when this is over, how will the world look dramatically different from what it looked like before? And I just pray that when that new world becomes manifest, it is rooted in the dream that every single one of us is in fact an image of the divine. Amen. <laughs> and for you, Jim, what what do you see as those overlapping principles that we can draw from? I think the, the faith word that's going to change things is epiphany. Here's what I, mean. I had one yesterday. We went out to do a solidarity vigil on the police line in front of the White House. And the reflection for me there was pray, prayer is essential, protest is required, and policy is necessary. Hmm. I have never seen in my life so many white people. Yeah ever caring about racism, America's original sin, and the police violence and murder against people of color. I've never seen that as much as I saw yesterday. So my epiphany with this began when I was 16. Today's my birthday, I'm 72. When I was 16, a black coworker at Detroit Edison, we were both janitors, asked me to come home with him to meet his mom and his kids. And we got talking that night about Detroit. This is 19, around 1967 when the so-called riot occurred because of a police incident. The mother said, his mom said, so I tell my kids, if you're ever lost and can't find your way home and you see a policeman, duck under a stairwell, hide behind a building, wait till he's gone, and then find your way home. When she said that, my mother's words echoed in my ears to her five kids, can't find your way home, look for a policeman. He's your friend. He'll take you by the hand and bring you home. That was an epiphany. Another epiphany, I was in Sing Sing Prison with his brother named Darren Ferguson. And uh, this, this brother said, Jim, you should all know that we're all in Sing Sing from four or five neighborhoods in New York City. Mm. Like a train, he said, that begins in neighborhoods like mine and ends up in places like Sing Sing. Those are epiphanies change us. Just talk, theology, political analysis, and the doesn't change things. We need epiphany. I saw, I saw thousands of young people having an epiphany together on the street yesterday in Washington, D.C. We're at a moment where we haven't been for a long time when faith communities could together talk about a movement for police reform. Right here, right now. Immediate, short-term, Build long term. We're now ready for it. We have to act very, very soon. Form must become a theological agenda of all of our faith communities. That is fabulous. 
Thank you so much, Jim. Bishop Darren Ferguson, you are that man who was in Sing Sing. You got your MDiv, I believe, in Sing Sing. Is that right? Well, certificate in uh, in, in, okay. The question that I want to ask you is how do you how do we navigate within our faith in many of our churches and are firmly embedded in the white supremacist ideals that not only approve of but encourage this type of policing that results in the deaths of Ahmaud Arbery, Breonna Taylor, and Mr. George Floyd. Do you have a sense of, have you actually been speaking to that within your faith communities? Yeah, a lot, Lisa. One of the things that I learned, my last uh, paper before I got my certificate of Sing Sing was entitled Plantation Theology. And what we have is a lot of black churches in America practicing theologies rooted in European Christian thought, which are used to justify the African diaspora, chattel slavery, all the way up to modern day nationalism. So this imperial mindset depends on optics and not efficacy. And it's halted the black church from demanding that America make good on a bounce check that Dr. King spoke about. So we've become like mired in the ways of our oppressors in this plantation deficit-based bootstrap theology that has us singing hollow hymns then depositing nothing into the fight for equality. So in my opinion, the black church and the church universal has to cease and desist from begging for tolerance at the table of a wicked master and asking a pivotal question. How do we sing the Lord's song in a strange land? Our black churches have to realize our considerable political and economic power. We have to lift our prophetic voices and not allow ourselves to wallow in the laziness of this name it and claim it, blab it and grab it ministry that wants us to hashtag our way into change because change is our sacrifice. And the catalyst for the change that we want to see in, in, in the book of Exodus was uh, when privileged Moses, who had assimilated from his rescue from the Nile River, began to identify with his own people and meted out punishment on an Egyptian cop. So we need modern day Moseses for dialogue and understanding. We have to we have to bring them to the house of Jethro and get them to understand our proud past and then encourage them to go forth and, and go to the modern day Pharaoh to demand the release of our people, demand uh, freedom from, from jails and prisons, from nooses and knees on necks of George Floyd, to, to the cops that killed Breonna Taylor, to the McMichael's lynch mob in Brunswick, Georgia. We have to we ask them to let us go and encourage the modern day, the young ones, the, the new Malcolms and Martins, the new Harriets and Sojourners and Nat Turners to fight with the boldness of our defiant Black African-American worship. That has to undergird the battle. And we have a spiritual, legislative, and economic battle to ensure that we fulfill the legacy of the words spoken by Shirley Chisholm when she said, if they don't give you a seat at the table, bring a folded chair. And we have to fulfill the legacy of the first scripture that Jesus read, Luke 418, which is prophet Isaiah chapter 61. The spirit of the Lord God has to be upon us because the Lord has anointed us to preach good tidings to the meek. The Lord has, has anointed us to send, to send us out to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives. This is what we have to do. And we can't do it under the, the guise of white supremacist theology that denies our blackness, denies our humanity, and even denies our voices when we sing the Lord's song in a strange land. Wow. So, so we have a few minutes before we have to transition to the next panel. So let me just ask you guys this. It seems like the, the common principles that I'm, I'm hearing are, one, I just love that image that you gave, Rabbi Browse, of the, is it a thousand angels walking before every single human being saying, make way for the image of the Lord? Oh, my God, that makes me want to cry. Just the thought of that, that that is how holy God saw and sees George Floyd. 
Yes. That's how holy God sees and saw Brianna Taylor and Ahmad Arbery and Tamir Rice and Michael Brown and the list goes on, Eric Gardner and Sandra Bland and say all of their names. That's how holy God saw them. So it seems like one of the principles that needs to be in place is the reality that we see them that way. Mm-hmm. That we, we legislate as if there are a thousand angels before each person. And that Bishop Darren Ferguson, what I hear from you is I hear the principle of, of let my people go. Let the image of God, release the image of God. Whatever we do, we have to release the image of God. Is that right? Did I hear you right? Yeah, we have to release ourselves to be free from the theology of our captors. We're not asking a captor to release us. We have to release ourselves. That's correct. That's that's great. Great. We, we have the change we want to see. Can I add a piece to this? Because I'm yeah, so yeah. connection between Bishop Ferguson and Reverend Wallace were saying mm-hmm. Moses needed to leave the palace in order to see the humanity in the people who were being oppressed by the Egyptians. And as Reverend Moss said before in the session before this, something's happening now where people, white people, are leaving the palace and taking to the streets and actually seeing some people for the very first time in their lives the full depth of the of the inequities and the injustices. And this is the moment for that epiphany that can lead us to really see the image of God in all of us. And what they saw was a white knee on a black neck. And every black parent in the country saw their sons and daughters under that knee. And now you got white parents saying, wait a minute, do I want to live in a country like this? Do I want to be okay? And young people are saying, no, you're not going to put, and that white knee isn't a knee, it's, it's a system, it's a structure, it's a whole, it is white supremacy, the knee of white supremacy we saw on the neck of one black man. And that is changing people's understanding of all our words. We say these words, and they go on and on and on, but that picture was seen around the world, and we see each other differently now in the white community we're seeing things differently. Whole lot of young people who haven't been involved in this conversation like the four of us have for a long time are seeing this for the first time. And it's an epiphany that is changing that. It sounds like there's an epiphany for all of us, right? There's an epiphany that Darren Ferguson, you are calling us people of color to have an epiphany about ourselves. Mm-hmm. And, and Jim, you are saying white people are having an epiphany about the reality that a thousand angels walk before George Floyd. And Rabbi Browse, you have brought that image of the meaning, the deep meaning of the image of God. I want to thank you so much for your offering on this panel and this discussion. Please join the rest of the discussion online as our colleagues come and actually now take these principles and help us dream. God bless you. Thank you. Shane Claiborne, Yvette Flender, and um, Stosh Kotler, and Simone Campbell. So we get a little more people. All right, here we go. I'm so excited for this conversation, you guys. Let's continue to talk. Let's continue to dream. So I have a question for Bishop Flender, who is the founder of the Fellowship of Affirming Ministries, um, and then also for Shane Claiborne, co-founder of Red Letter Christians, and also Simple Way, the community The Simple Way. What isn't working? What isn't working? And how could you imagine it done differently? So now we're in dream mode. Now we're like, okay, all holds barred. 
if the cost was not the issue, if politics was not the issue, if we could have policing and law enforcement the way that it's, or even public safety as it could be, what, what should it be? Thank you, Valisa Sharon Harper. I appreciate you so much, my sister and colleague, and to all my beloved that are on this call today, both where I can see your faces and I can hear your hearts. Just as a backdrop, I would say that what I call political distancing regarding the role, particularly of law enforcement, is often empowered and informed by race-based theological supremacy. Um, systemic in religion is the hunger for supremacy. And it makes many religious people blind to our common humanity. Say that again. Say what you just said again. Religious supremacy. The role of law enforcement is empowered and informed by race-based theological supremacy. Right. And systemic in religion is the hunger for supremacy. Mine is better than yours. That's deep. Many religious people blind to our common humanity. And none of us have a corner on the divine. And religion must stop using God to sanctify racism, classism, sexism, homophobia, or our hatred of the other, whoever the other is. Mm -hmm. And we currently have a powerful moment. And I'm deeply touched by everything that I've heard today. We have a new time. We have a fresh season. I heard Reverend Al Sharpton a few minutes ago say in our loss of our brother George Floyd mm -hmm. that it's time to reflect on our divine responsibility and not to spend our lives simply trying to get to paradise, but to bring paradise, mm -hmm. heaven, justice, equal access, the realm of God and good to earth. But we cannot go into this with our blinders on because there is a price to pay. And I'm reminded briefly of the story of Moses when he was about to shift and change from his privilege to his call. Mm -hmm. And he saw an Egyptian killing a Hebrew. And he killed the Egyptian. But the text says that before he killed the Egyptian, he looked both ways. <laughs> mm. Why did he look both ways? Because he mm. didn't want to be seen doing what he was doing, though he may have thought it was just to do it. He didn't want to be seen because to be seen meant that he would lose his privilege. Mm. Why am I saying that? Because now it is time for us to be seen. We have got to have some holy mm -hmm. risk takers. That's good. Holy risk takers. Mm -hmm. And I am grateful to our young people for a visual of the power of unity. Mm -hmm. And I'm also grateful that in this peculiar time, the Holy Spirit has canonized George Floyd yes. and made him the object the person, the moment for us to come together as one. It is time for us to find our way to a common understanding of the divine's need and the divine's call for us in this hour. Thank you. And Shane, 
Thank you, Bishop. This is wonderful to see all these faces yeah. and friends and people I love. I'm sharing my comments from the context of my neighborhood where we've been dreaming for 20 years, but we woke up this morning with troops on the ground. We, we have uh, on every corner military troops here in our neighborhood. And I, I, I noticed that they're carrying AR-15s, the very tools that we've been making garden plows uh, out of uh, these guns, uh, inspired by the prophetic vision of turning swords and plows. So I asked them if they'd like to donate any of their guns this morning, but that, that dreaming is what we've been doing. So what's not working, just a few things that are not working, are the police policing the police, right? I mean, because I had Hello. naivety yeah. when I came here that, wow, we can just report these things, right? I saw a police officer in the middle of a snowstorm arresting somebody for a minor alleged crime, and then they took a shoe off of them and threw it over a fence, laughing that he would get out in the snow and have to walk home with one shoe on. Uh, we saw people, you know, hold folks down here and a homeless man that was mentally ill and tell him he deserved to die in the gutter. And I thought, well, we'll just report that. That officer was named officer of the year that year. So this is not working. So I dream of not the police controlling the people, but the people controlling the police. Yes. It's like you have Yelp reviews. We can review our police officers. But just like those of us who fly a lot, you get those coupons that say uh, you're over the top when you do something great that we can, and I understand that flight attendants would get a thousand dollar raise when they got an over the top sticker, you know, that we can actually celebrate good practices and we can also hold police officers accountable. There's no real way to do that. The other thing I dream of is I, I think like what I learned in this encounter with the police and my friend who struggles with mental health is that they're not trained to be social workers. So mm -hmm. I dream that we don't have police officers doing everything, that maybe as a nation, we imagine a new group of first responders that are not coming armed and ready to escalate, but they are actually coming armed with the tools to disarm and de-escalate, that they have the tools, they're trained for that. So maybe it's a group of uh, emergency social workers, right, that come and they, they are trained to try to figure out a situation and de-escalate it. And the last thing I think of is I, I think the truth sets us free. We need to be truthful about the historic harm that's been done by the police. We need to see the police officers that have been accused and been convicted of crimes. Our, my friend Larry Krasner, our DA, put up the profiles of police officers and the truth sets us free. And so I'll just say my last little dream vision is this picture of police officer using his billy club to play wiffle ball on our block. And that's mm. our, the world that I want to see. It's where the police officers are coming and using those billy clubs to play wiffle ball rather than to terrorize our kids. Because I know kids in our neighborhood that when they see a police officer, they've been so traumatized, they begin to cry and to shake. And yeah. that's not that's not the world we want to live in. Amen. Thank you all. Yeah. Amen. Stash Hartler with Ben the Ark. You at Ben the Ark, a Jewish partnership for justice. How do we practice dreaming? Because Shane just gave us a bunch of dreams that he has. And Simone is about to give us one more in terms of she's going to share with us the economic edge of this. But I want you to share with us how what's the practice? How do we practice this? Yeah, I, first, I just have to say I'm so deeply honored to be on this call in this conversation. And I also want to say that 
Bishop, I am here as a holy risk taker, as an accomplice in this struggle Mm -hmm. to defend Black lives and to transform this country. And, Mm -hmm. you know, I feel like as people who come into this conversation and into this work with a spiritual practice of any kind, we have a very powerful set of scaffoldings within our own traditions that support our human ability to be disciplined in dreaming and to be disciplined in our practice of dreaming. And the other way I think about dreaming is visioning. And so we have rituals and rites and all the different ways to on a daily or weekly or seasonal basis, be reminded over and over again about what is truly core, which is of course this intrinsic human connection among and between all of us and in relationship to that which we have many names for. In every tradition, in addition to having a scaffolding, we also have either a vision for a perfected world or an understanding of what it means to be human without suffering or a vision of a perfected world to come. And so for as an example, in Judaism, we have a weekly practice of Shabbat, which is not just a pause and giving ourselves a time to deeply rest and make a sacred space in time itself, but also to embody perfection, to mm-hmm. look for perfection every single week. Mm-hmm. And so the thing I want us to remember is that we as human beings are always practicing something. And as human beings, we always get better at what we practice. So if you take anyone who has mastery in any domain, a a preacher, an artist, they have practiced hours and hours and hours to be amazing. We've heard from many of them, you, Lisa Sharon Harper. And so the question is really like, are we practicing what we want to become? Are we as a society practicing who we want to be? And for most of us, I'd say we are practicing things like gossip, We are defaulting into habitual ways of practicing racism for white people. For many white people, we're practicing unexamined ways that we put our trust into police without thinking or knowing or asking questions about how others experience that. And so my best thinking around this is that we have what we need. We have the tools. And I think if we actually put those who are directly impacted by these injustices, and for right now at this time, we are talking about black people, putting Black people at the very center of our communal rituals to ask these questions. What is the practice that we can have together that we will be disciplined in doing day after day, season after season to uproot racism and to uproot anti-Black racism in particular for all of our sakes? Awesome. Wow. So that's what I'm talking about. It's talking about the practice. So Sister Simone runs Network, Network Lobby, and she killed it at, what was it, the 2014 Democratic Convention? Well, 2012. 2012 Democratic Convention. I remember watching that and then I met her and I was fangirling and everything. <laughs> uh, but I want to ask you, Sister Simone, since you really major on the numbers, how does the future of policing intersect with the economic situation of our communities? Like, what can we do differently economically in order to begin to dream a better world? Well, I, I think if we're going to dream a better world, we have to acknowledge that a bunch of the role of the police has been protecting exactly those who live in the palace that you were talking about, Bishop Flunder, and that we have to be willing to invite everybody out of the palace and say, you got to come live with us, y'all. You cannot do this economic domination because if we do economic, if we disentangle the economic domination and the economic oppression that's going on historically for since 1619, 
we can then change and move towards that kind of engagement that you were talking about, Shane, and Stash, that you that would be the envisioning that we would need. The big challenge is, is that our economic system has been built around white supremacy. And we just have to be clear about that. Mm-hmm. It's been built on the backs of African-Americans, first as slaves and then as sharecroppers and laborers. I never realized that until I started studying this, that the white plantation owners after the Civil War were paid for their loss of property. That was the freeing of the slaves. Mm -hmm. But the slaves were never paid for their loss of labor, for the fact that they had worked without salaries, without payment. Mm -hmm. And so the disequilibrium in our society really got thrown out of whack Mm -hmm. out of any sort of balance in that. And we have just built on that. So I think what we have to do is see that economic intersection, see the fact that the reason we have so many African-Americans and other people of color dying in this COVID crisis is because they are the most vulnerable frontline workers. Mm -hmm. It's the work. It's not that. And the fact that we have historically kept low-wage workers out of our healthcare systems. So it's those kinds of intersections that we have to see the inequality. And we white folks have a lot of work to do to get over ourselves, quite frankly. And so to see us as united in this world that we care so much about. But I think the key is from the book of Sirach, it says in chapter 17, verse six, he gave them a heart to think with. And I think that's what we have to do. And that will free us mm. to engage in whole different ways and see the intersection and be able to move. That is so powerful. We have people in the chat who are saying defund the police. And I totally am like, yes. The thing is, you can't just rip it down. It's got to be something else built up, right? So what I love, I saw the report last night that Eric Garcetti in Los Angeles decided to take $100 million that he had been planning on putting into the police and instead shift that funding over to um, services that would actually help build up and keep people from becoming poor. So what do you think of that? What do you think of the project of the economics, like in terms of the funding of the police? That's critical because the police have gotten a lot of money to buy really wartime weaponry. And the reason that's happened is because of the military industrial complex that has sold them and gained a lot of profit by getting federal money to give local police military weapons and so to shift that to say it's about relationship what a step forward walking freedom road from coast to coast and around the globe this is the freedom road podcast Cap is a weekly podcast hosted by the Center for American Progress's Michelle Jawando and Igor Volsky. In the current political moment we find ourselves in, full of protests, anger, and activist momentum, Thinking Cap hopes to lay the groundwork for the bold progressive policy ideas we need to continue moving this movement and our country forward. 
You can find new episodes each Thursday on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and AmericanProgress.org, or wherever you get your podcasts. Also find them on Twitter at ThinkCapPod. The next panel is going to help us know what to do now. So we got we got some heavy hitters up in here. <laughs> Thank you so much. And we have Reverend Liz Theo Harris of the Poor People's Campaign that's come on. And she's going to help us to talk about what are the ways we can take action in order to uh, help alleviate, and not even alleviate, transform the way that we do public safety from a perspective of the poor. We also have Reverend Adam Taylor, who's with Sojourners. We heard from Jim earlier. Adam is the next generation of leaders of Sojourners. And we also have Reverend Andrea Alexander from the National Council of Churches. And she is she heads up all of their racial justice stuff and more. And we're going to have a conversation. The question is, how can we move forward toward this other way of being together in the world, in the United States, concerning public safety and law enforcement. Well, thank you, Lisa. It's so good to be with all of you. Such an amazing and really important conversation. I want to frame this a little bit theologically. Many of us are familiar with the concept, theological concept of Kairos. I learned a ton about Kairos in my experience in South Africa Mm. from church leaders there, and they shared with me that their experience in Kairos is that Kairos, Kairos moments are when the reality around us becomes so fraudulent, so depraved, mm-hmm. so egregious, that it can force a moment of reckoning and awakening. And I know sometimes we throw out the term tipping point a little too much, but it really does feel like this moment is different. It really yeah. does feel like it can be and should be, must be a tipping point. But that requires that we build greater power and that we sustain so much of this activism and pressure and translate it into power. Dr. King once said, the collision of immoral power with powerless morality constitutes the central crisis of our time. And unfortunately, we still don't have enough powerful morality. It is really inspiring to see all of these millions of white allies, some who were allies before, some are new allies. It's really inspiring to see many white pastors wanting to say more and preach more. But what we have to do is we have to ensure that so many of these folks end up voting in this next election. That is one way in which we can exercise our power. And Sojourners is doing everything we can to ensure that people can vote, particularly Black communities can vote in this next election. So we got to work to protect the vote. The second is we need substantive and comprehensive policy reform. And some of that, I think, is very possible in the short term, even before the election. There needs to be inordinate pressure placed on police chiefs and mayors in this moment. I know the Obama Foundation is doing some of this great work. Campaign Zero, Eight Can't Wait. There's lots of different policy initiatives out there. But we need the faith community to be a moral voice that pushes in a very, very powerful way on mayors and police chiefs to adopt the very reforms we know are necessary and that are going to save lives. Mm. And lastly, we do need policy transformation. And that certainly has to happen through hopefully an electoral transformation in November, going back to my point about voting. But it also has has to mean that, again, we are more engaged in ongoing organizing, mobilizing, and advocacy efforts. And certainly, 
you know, some of the work that Sojourn is doing is one option, but there's so many great organizations involved in this call that are part of that broader movement. Thank you, Adam. I love the concept of dreaming a world, right? Michelle Alexander's book about the new Jim Crow. Yes. And I would say that this is not the new Jim Crow, of course. It is just a new level and a revolving of slavery itself. The 14th of the 13th Amendment, it abolished the involuntary servitude and slavery except for. And so we have slavery today. And so when you say, what can we move forward and what can we do? And I hear, I hear, I hear what we need to do is abolish slavery. Yes. We have to start with steps towards abolishing the carceral system that currently exists in this country. And there are steps that have to be done, of course, and I believe in that, but the goal should be to abolish slavery. Wow. And also engaging our powers. And this is part of, that's all the policy things, the praying protests that Dr. Wallace talked about earlier. But I think about this idea of engaging our powers and the first and most, the greatest power we have is the divine that is within us. Mm. And so we would unite mm. the hands, feet, and voice of the divine together. Mm-hmm. Then that power will overcome all the principalities and powers and systems that are in high places. Mm. That is the greatest power. And so, yes, we have that, that if we keep those things at the core of what we do and our policy seeking, then we know what our ultimate goal is. When I walk in and I do our congressional visits and everybody goes around the table and introduce themselves, I always say, well, I'm looking to have God's kingdom on earth is in heaven. Yes. That's where we start. And then we negotiate down from there. <laughs> I just love that. Can I come along next time? Oh, <laughs> I want to be in the room. An army is rising. Yes, yes. Awesome. Reverend Dr. Liz Theo Harris, I'm sure with us, what do you see as the way that we can walk forward into that new way of being together in the world? So I really appreciate, you know, the conversation and, and what's been said already. As the director of the Kairos Center, I think about Kairos moments all the time. The breaking down of the old, the destructive, the hateful, the bigoted, the impoverished, and the breaking through of the new. And when we think about the current situation that's happening in this country, more than 100,000 people dead. The New York Times, Columbia University says that that it didn't have to be this way with COVID-19, where we have over and over and over again, police violence against black and brown bodies, the killing of George Floyd and so many, too many, too many people. And then you have these institutions of our our society just failing people, right? You know, how is it that, that it took months and months of a botched response for even any healthcare workers to get some PPE but we have militarized police in cities across this country with no problem having everything that they need, all the money. You know, we have we're, our states and cities spend more than 30 to 60 percent on police and we're cutting education, we're cutting health care. And so what it's always been in this country's history, when you need great 
transformation, when evil is everywhere around, it's when those that are most impacted come together, band together and organize. And, and I think we see this happening in big cities and in small towns and rural areas. I'm, I'm getting reports with the Poor People's Campaign, you know, of folks in Elmira, uh, New York, to Altoona, Pennsylvania, to Decatur, Illinois, joining with thousands and thousands in LA and New York City, where I live in Brooklyn, and just saying, you know, enough is enough. Like mm-hmm. all of this death and all of this destruction, all of this poverty. I mean, how do you not expand healthcare in a pandemic? How do you fund the police in a moment of police violence? How do mm-hmm. you, like, I mean, how do you talk about this question of looting when who has gotten 80% of the, the federal bailout has been the, the rich in corporations? I mean, so how do you respond to that? You, you organize, you organize, you organize, and you organize those whose backs are against the wall and all they can do is push. Mm-hmm. And indeed, I, I agree with you that a nonviolent army of the poor is rising, um, Reverend Alexander. I mean, I think mm-hmm. what we're seeing, you know, in the Poor People's Campaign is people are organizing around, uh, against police violence, against racist killings, against the rise of white supremacy, as people are organizing for healthcare and for voting rights and for mm-hmm. education, is that, you know, people are ready for a new transformation and are are trying to bring that into reality. And and the question is, can we build up the power and the unity to be able to, to build that and to win not just one demand, not just one conviction, but economic rights, civil rights for all, for everyone. Because the reality is there are more of us than there are of them. There are more poor people in the United States than there are of any other single group. That's right. I mean, so the, before the pandemic hit, before, you know, these these bailouts that have just made the rich richer and the and more people poor, there were 140 million people who were poor on the income. And, you know, we now have close to 45 million people who have been able to apply for unemployment. People are saying that there's a 45 percent increase in homelessness, that 40 percent of families that were making forty thousand dollars or less have lost a job over the past you know, couple of months. And what we're seeing is increased violence, both vigilante violence and policy violence against you know, pe- poor people and, and especially black people, brown people, native people. So, you know, we are, we are the numbers. And I know, Adam, I know that Sojourners is working on some of that long-term game in terms of the voting. Look, nothing changes, nothing changes, quite honestly, if Trump is the emperor with no clothes after November, right? So we have got to change the chessboard. We've got to change who's in, who is in. We've got to change the people who are actually in power to be able to make these policy changes. So tell us how we can make sure we're able to do that in November. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm a proud member of the First Black Fraternity, and our motto is a voteless people is a hopeless people. So we don't vote. Our hope is evaporated. Yeah, We have a, a campaign that's in partnership with the African, National African-American Clergy Network with Dr. Barbara Skinner and so many other black church leaders called Lawyers and Collars. You can check it out, lawyersandcollars.org. We are working all across the country to empower and equip black churches with other allies to ensure that every voter who is made in the image of God is able to exercise the right to vote. And we're pushing back against this concerted campaign of voter suppression tactics around the country. Now, the COVID crisis has made this even harder and even more risky. Mm -hmm. So we have to ensure that states and allow 
absentee voting with no excuse and winning victories in many states, but there are still states, particularly in the South, Alabama being one of them, that are dragging their feet on enabling that to happen. We have to ensure that people can still vote in safe voting locations. And that is particularly critical for rural areas, for native reservations and other places. And we've got to ensure that early voting is expanded. And so love to work with anyone who's interested. We have to protect the right to vote and we have to mot motivate people to vote. And you know, there's been kind of a longstanding mantra in the black community of souls to the polls. And that's still relevant, but we may actually have to get to the polls and to the mailbox, particularly if, if, if absentee ballot is the healthiest and safest way for a lot of us to, a lot of us to vote come November. Awesome, thank you so much. And Reverend Alexander, is there something that we can be doing through the NCC in this time? What initiative do you have, a way for people to engage that we can be working toward a new way of being together in the world um, around public safety? Well, we're, we're constantly working. One of the first issues we jumped right on during the COVID crisis was immediately acknowledging that people who were incarcerated were at a very high risk. Mm. And so we've been working on some decarceral projects, letting getting people out under compassionate release, making sure that families have access to their family members by way of free phone calls, emails, text messages. Believe it or not, people have to pay for all those things. We've been on watch with many of our partners as to what's happening inside. There are some facilities where anywhere from 70 to 80 percent of the people inside are have tested positive. And so that's an ongoing issue. And so all of the various legislations, mm -hmm. primarily from the federal uh, lens, but part working where we could and with those state organizations. And we just continue to also work in partnership with our 38 communions and other organizations such as Sojourners. One of the things I wanted to mention, and this, this is about how we get things done, reminding our people that the census needs to be, they have to do their census, fill out their census form. Mm -hmm. It has been extended in case they don't know to October 31st. And as we know, if you aren't counted, then you don't count. Mm -hmm. And so I just want to make sure that that's a message that goes out. That's really good. And the census you can do online, y'all. Look, if you have a smartphone, you can do the census. There is and no all reason. those 200 people who then reached their 1,000 people that Dr. Uh, Liz Theo Harris said, they should be also making sure they do their census. That's really good. Friends, thank you so, so much for being a part of this conversation we had today. This was holy ground. This was holy ground. You helped us to dream today. And I also want to just say that the work that we have to do, every step we take, every click we make, every time we make a phone call, every time we go out and risk, we do holy risking, we are doing holy work. This is all work of faith. Lisa, I just wanted to say that I found out, you know, we've been, I've been on these things all day. I turned on the television very briefly. Los Angeles just shifted money from police departments to black communities. Hmm. Yes. I just want to make sure people will look that up because it can be done. Yes, that's right. That's exactly right. We, yes, that's exactly right. So thank you. Thank you for being a part of this conversation. Thank you to all of our guests. Thank you to everyone who came and, and watched. Um, if you want more information, you should definitely follow all of the organizations that were listed here. There's a lot of them. So Poor People's Campaign, Sojourners, National Council of Churches, ECAR, the Ministry of Affirming Churches, 
network lobby, healing communities. I said sojourners, <laughs> Trinity UCC, and then also Revolutionary Love and the Voices Project. So follow those organizations. They are organizations who are actually going to be helping people of faith to move into a more just world. It cannot happen until we dream it. And the first thing that a dictatorship does is it, it squashes your capacity to dream. So it is time to fan the flames of our dreams again. Okay. Amen. Thank you. Thank you. And come over to Freedom Road too. <laughs> the conversations leaders have on the road to justice. This is the Freedom Road podcast. Thank you for joining us today. The Freedom Road podcast is recorded in Washington, D.C., and actually wherever our guests are in the world in this COVID crisis. This episode was engineered and edited by David Dalt of Sandberg Media. Freedom Road podcast is produced by Freedom Road LLC. We consult, coach, train, and design experiences that bring common understanding, common commitment, and lead to common action. You can find out more about our work at our website, freedomroad.us. Stay in the know by signing up for updates. And we promise we really won't. We will not fill your inbox. <laughs> we invite you to listen again next month. New episodes drop around the first week of each month. Join the conversation on Freedom Road.